And over these last two weeks, we've been looking at these first 18 verses known as the prologue. It is an introduction to the entire gospel and the major themes that we will see explained and lived out in the weeks and the months ahead are set in this foundational passage of Scripture as we look at the incarnate Christ, the reality that the eternal Word who was with God in the beginning became flesh and lived among us to accomplish God's eternal plan of redemption on our behalf. We've looked at the eternal Christ the one that was pre-existent, the one that was always in fellowship with God, the one to whom the creation of our physical world has been credited. We looked at the incarnate Christ, the reality that He is self-existent, He has life in Himself. It is not just that He gives life, but that He is life, and that that light shines in the darkness, and that light gives life to men. We looked at the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, the prophet who came with the message, imploring the people to make way for the Lord, the one who was going to come and save his people from their sins. It was a unique responsibility that John was given. We'll look at that very briefly today, and we'll spend more time on his ministry next week as our passage unfolds before us. We looked at the unrecognized Christ, that his light shines and illuminates all men, Not that all will be saved, but that the light of the gospel, the glory of God, has been shown on all people. Some have accepted Him superficially, some have been hostile towards Him, and some have just blatantly rejected the Son of God. We also looked at the saving Christ. We looked at the great privilege that is given to us to become the children of God if we will believe in His name. That believing means to accept, it means to embrace, it means to abide in, and this is what it means to be a child of God, that we grasp and we cling to Jesus for our very lives. Now today we'll look at the last presentation of Christ in our passage, and this is the glory of Christ, and we're going to be focusing on verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. Here's what the Word of God says to us today. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me, for of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. And so John the Apostle shares with us something about the glory of Christ. As we look at the glory of Christ, we're going to look at three specific things from our passage here today. The first one is this, it is the mystery of his glory. Now in the Bible when we see the word mystery, it isn't a who done it. It isn't it isn't in suspense. It is that which was not previously known has now been disclosed. So this glory of God that was not made manifest to the nation of Israel or at any other time in man's history, it is now being revealed. The glory of God is being revealed through the life of Christ, in these five little words that we read in verse 14, and the Word became 
flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh. What an incredible, what a profound truth for us to understand through the giftedness of the Holy Spirit to our lives that we recognize that God has become flesh. The infinite is now finite. Eternity has entered into time. The Creator has entered into the world that He created. God became a man. And so when we read again that the Word became flesh, we remember that the Word to the Jew had a very specific meaning to them. When they heard the word Lagos, they understood that to mean, thus saith the Lord. The God of this world has spoken and everything came into being. When God spoke through the prophets, the word of the Lord was given. He spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He spoke to the nation of Israel all through their wilderness. And now He has spoken through His Son as the word has become flesh. To the Greek mind, the word meant something different but it also signified something very dynamic in their understanding. The Word was the soul of the universe, the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It is the creative force. It is the source of wisdom. And they would recognize that it had some kind of divine essence to it. And so when John chose the word Lagos, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was with this specific reasoning in mind, it would speak to both the Jew and the Gentile in a very particular way. Now, for the word to become flesh means that he became a human. It affirms the complete humanity of Jesus Christ. Him coming in the flesh does not connotate the sinful nature or the unregenerate part of our flesh. It just signifies that Jesus became skin and bones, blood and muscle, just like you and just like me. There was no change in His nature. There was no change in His essence. There was a change just in His appearance as He came into the world that He created as a man to accomplish the predetermined plan of God. And so the Word became a man, but He did not stop being God. Now, this is a tremendously difficult concept for many in our world to fully understand. In fact, this has been a battle that has been raging from the very beginning of these words being penned and of these words being spoken. It's how could God be a man and still be God? For the first 400 years of church history, there were many kinds of doctrines that were floated out amongst the people that either sought to deny the humanity of Jesus while protecting His divinity, or denying His divinity while maintaining His humanity. The Greek mind believed that the physical world was evil. That which you could see, that which you could touch, was evil. Therefore, all mankind was evil. And for Jesus to be a full human man made Him evil in the mind of the Greek. On the other hand, the spirit world was considered to be good. So they denied the humanity of Jesus 
and an effort to protect the divinity of Jesus. And so they would teach the Spirit descended upon Jesus at the time of His baptism and then departed from Him at the time of His crucifixion. There's great problems with that. If Jesus was not fully human and was not also fully divine, then we have to tear the first 18 verses out of the Gospel of John and many other verses throughout the Gospel of John that clearly confirm His incarnation, that God became a man. If we deny the incarnation of God, that He is both fully human and fully man, then we undermine the resurrection because He didn't really die because He wasn't really a man. And we render incomplete the sacrificial death of Christ because it was not God in the form of Jesus who died for us, but simply a good man. So you can't have it one way or the other. He is either fully human and divine, or He is not. And if He is not, then we are without hope There is no forgiveness of sin. The grave has not been conquered. Death has not been rendered null and void for the child of God. When Jesus came into the world, He did not stop being God. He was fully God and fully man. Indivisible, fused oneness. Exactly as God's Word proclaims to us today. And so the Word became flesh, but still remained the Word. God became a man, and yet He was still God. How do you accept what you cannot understand? And how can you explain what you cannot understand? Faith. It is faith in the accuracy, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the trustworthiness of the Word of God. You know, there's a lot of things that in our world that we can't fully understand and we can't render them to not be true just because we can't understand them. How much more is it necessary for us to accept by faith that God came into this world and was fully God and fully man? If we can't accept this reality, there's little hope that we will become a child of God. In fact, as we'll look at, as we have looked at and will continue to look at, it renders our salvation incomplete if we do not accept that truth. So, the Word became flesh. Letter B, He, the Word, dwelt among us. Very simply spoken in verse 14, the very first part of that, and the Word dwelt among us. To dwell means literally to pitch a tent. Some of you like to go camping. Some of you when you were kids like to go camp in the backyard. So if you're a real camper, you don't pull up in an RV or a motorhome. You go out and you pitch a tent. It's a temporary place for you to lay down and hopefully get some sleep, although that doesn't always work. I remember the first time we, one of the first times we went camping as a family, we had a six-month-old puppy, and that thing barked at everything that moved, at every sound that was made, and we laid there for hours waiting for this dog to go to sleep so that we could go to sleep. And I remember rolling over and looking at my watch, and I said out loud, oh man. And Marcy, who was still awake because of the constant barking of the dog, said, what's the matter? And I said, what time do you think it is? She goes, I don't know, five or six? And I said, no, it's two o'clock. We've been laying there since it was dark, and none of us had gotten any sleep. (laughs) The dog jumped up at the sound of a raccoon, started licking everybody's face. 
Everybody was wide awake, but we pitched a tent temporarily. It was just for a short period of time. And this is the idea here, is that the Word became flesh and He dwelt amongst us for a little while. In the Old Testament, God dwelt or tented with His people through His glorious presence in the tabernacle. We read this in Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was dwelling with the people temporarily in the tabernacle. Also later when the temple was built, the same occurrence takes place. First Kings Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What used to fill the tabernacle and the temple as a cloud was no longer the case. Now the Word has become flesh He has dwelt among us in the form of a human being in the appearance of Jesus, the Son of God. His humanity was not a mere appearance. He took on all the essential attributes of humanity, born a baby, grew up into a young man, and even went through puberty. Can you imagine that? Jesus' voice changing the gawkiness of my hands and my feet growing faster than my body can accommodate. That is exactly what took place. Jesus was born as the precious little infant in Bethlehem and grew to become the carpenter's son, the very begotten Son of God. Hebrews 2.14 reads like this, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, He Himself, Jesus, likewise, also partook of the same flesh and blood, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You hear in the voice of the writer of Hebrews, if Jesus was not fully human, then He did not render powerless the one that holds the keys to death. Likewise, we read in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore He, Jesus, had to be made like His brethren in all things, in the form of a human man, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. These verses speak not only of His physical presence in this world, but also of this key truth of affirming the incarnation of Jesus as the Word becoming flesh. He dwelt among us for a short period of time, but a time is coming... A time is coming when the people of God will dwell with their God, not for just a little while, not in an appearance of a man, not in cloud, but to see Him as He really is, face to face for all of eternity. We read these words in Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice, the same John that wrote the, the Gospel we're reading, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away, passed away, and oh, what a glorious day that will be. Do you long for the day when you will dwell 
face to face with the Word who became flesh for all of eternity. Do you look forward to that day? I hope you do. Many, many people say, yeah, I look forward to that, but not yet. Not quite yet. There's more I want to do. There's more I want to see. There's more I want to experience. But I can tell you the greatest thing that can ever happen to us is to be ushered from our temporary place in this world to go to be in our eternal home with the Father who loves us and has saved us. There's nothing that will ever compare to that. No experience on this earth, no accolade in this world will ever be more significant in our life than the day when we see Him as He really is, the day that begins our eternity. So the Word becomes flesh. The Word dwells among us. Then the thirdly, letter C, and He was full of glory. Verse 14, And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we read here is this, is that Jesus displayed the glory of God through His earthly life with crystal clarity. The glory of God was revealed through the earthly life of Jesus with crystal clarity. But His glory was veiled because of His humanity. When we're talking about the glory of Jesus in this world, we're talking about His his spiritual, excuse me, his physical glory. Excuse me, we're talking about his spiritual glory, not his physical glory. When you see his physical glory, we go back to Matthew chapter 7 at the transfiguration. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. What John and Peter saw that day on the, at the transfiguration, when Jesus' true glory was revealed through His physical presence, they said, hey, I like that. I want, I want some more of that. Can you do that again? To see His physical glory on full display would have brought no doubt to who He really was. But His true glory was veiled through His humanity. So when we're talking here about the glory of Christ, we're talking about His spiritual glory. And so John tells us what that spiritual glory is. His glory is full of grace and truth. So there's two primary characteristics of this glory that John is speaking of. And the first one is grace. Grace is very simply not getting what we deserve. I came across this story from the life of Charles Swindoll, who recollects a time when grace was made real to him. And so let me read his words. He says, I recall my last spanking when I turned 13 years old. Having just broken into the sophisticated ranks of the teen world, I thought that I was something on a stick, but my father wasn't nearly as impressed as I was with my great importance and newfound independence. So one afternoon I was lying on my bed, and he was, my dad was outside the window on a muggy October day in Houston, Texas, weeding the garden. And he said, Charles, come out and help me weed the garden. And Chuck says, I remember saying something like, no, it's my birthday, remember? My tone was sassy, and my deliberate lack of respect was eloquent. 
And I knew better than to, dis- than to disobey my dad. But after all, I was the ripe old age of 13. Well, Dad set a new 100-meter record that autumn afternoon. He was in the house in a flash and all over me like white on rice, spanking me all the way out to the garden. And as I recall, I weeded until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. That same night, he took me out to a surprise dinner for my birthday. He gave me what I deserved when he spanked me. But later, he gave me what I did not deserve. That birthday dinner was a matter of grace. He showered his favor on this rebellious young man, and I enjoyed grace. You know, if we could just pause for a moment and see ourselves as we really are a polished up sinner through the grace of Christ, and then be able to look back at who we were before. God made His grace known to us. How much more obvious is it that God has given to us what we do not deserve? You know, it's, it's important for us to intellectually understand what that means. But it means something quite different when we can think back into the days of our lives when we didn't love the Lord, when we wanted nothing to do with the Lord, where we were like Jonah who ran as far from the Lord as we possibly could. And it was a matter of God's grace that stopped us cold in our tracks. And just for an instant, we might have seen Him as He really is, as we were made aware of who we really are. And the reality of that salvation washes over us and we recognize that God has not given to us what we deserved. What do we deserve? We deserve an eternal separation from Him. We don't deserve the blessings that He gives to us day after day after day. We don't deserve the uncounted second chances. We don't deserve all the good things that God blesses our lives with, and yet He continues to do so because God is is grace. Jesus' earthly life was full of grace. We'll see some examples of that as we go through this Gospel of John. The second characteristic of this glory is truth. Not only was He full of grace, but He was also full of truth. Now, Old Testament was truth. Listen very carefully. Old Testament was truth, but truth only partially revealed. Very important. The Old Testament is truth. It was truth, but it's only truth partially revealed. The Old Testament truth is a type of Christ. It is a shadow of Christ. The Old Testament alone, apart from the truth of Jesus Christ, is partial truth because it doesn't fully reveal what was to come. It speaks of it. It alludes to it. It prophesies about it. But it doesn't explain it with the kind of clarity that Jesus Himself explains through His earthly life and His ministry and His teaching. Let me ask you this question. What happens to the Jew who is fully committed to the truth revealed in the Old Testament and yet rejects the revealed truth of Jesus Christ? What happens to that Jewish person? They're not saved, are they? 
because they haven't accepted the full revelation of God's truth as revealed in the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Half truth or partial truth is no truth at all. Now, you and I live in the kind of culture where half-truth really isn't a lie. Well, there's some truth in it, right? I wasn't blatantly lying. I wasn't saying what I said or doing what I did for my own personal gain. So it isn't really sin. It isn't really wrong. But that's not true in terms of God's truth. Partial truth or half-truth is no truth at all. Jesus is full of truth. In fact, Jesus is truth. We read in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. He doesn't just speak truth. He Himself is truth, just like He is the life. We read this in John chapter 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, you will know Me, and the truth will make you free. To, to separate the truth of Jesus, to separate the truth that is Jesus, from the revealed truth of the Old Testament, is just partial truth, and it does not result in salvation. Grace and truth are cornerstones to our salvation. Grace, a love that we don't deserve, and the truth that is found in Jesus alone. A vague belief in God, apart from the revealed truth about Jesus, will not result in salvation. Here are the words of Jesus Himself in John 8.24, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Was Jesus lying? Was Jesus pulling the wool over their eyes? Was He just trying to scare them into getting serious about Judaism? Was He trying to rope them into making some kind of a superficial commitment? No. He was speaking the truth because He is truth. John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So because Jesus is truth, to reject Him as truth, to reject Him as the fullness of God's glory, full of grace and truth, will result in an artificial salvation. Somebody who thinks they're saved by adhering to some moral code or by having some kind of an intellectual belief in a God. But hey, I want to tell you, the Word is very clear. If we do not give our lives to the truth that is Jesus, of believing in Him, abiding in Him, following Him, then we will not be saved. So we've looked at number one, the mystery of His glory. Number two... We're going to look at the witness of His glory. And this is a reintroduction of John the Baptist. Verse 15, John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. Now, 
John the Apostle was not alone in his testimony. He not only had all the other apostles and other disciples who would be testifying about the truthfulness of the ministry of Jesus, but he calls back to the testimony of John the Baptist as a fellow witness of this glory. Now we're going to look at John's teaching and ministry a little bit more in detail when we get into our next section of Scripture. But John the Apostle brings John the Baptist into this for the reason that John the Baptist, at the time of this writing, still had a very large following. John the Baptist had been dead for years, decades even, and well into the second century, John the Baptist still had a very devoted following. And so it's with great intentionality that John the Apostle reminds the readers of what John the Baptist said about Jesus. Letter A, John testified of his own inferior position to Jesus. Verse 15, he has a higher rank. He existed before me. That's what John says. Now, if you know the chronology, John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus, or at least six months, and he actually began his ministry before Jesus did. John the Baptist is an external witness of this glory. Although John had an incredibly important role as the forerunner of Christ or the messenger of the coming of the Christ and had a large following, by his own declaration, he had an inferior position to Christ. John the Baptist was created. Jesus has always been. John the Baptist was a messenger Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the fulfillment of all of God's promises that pushed His people forward to the longing expectation of the Messiah who is going to come. John the Baptist cried out, Make way! Jesus Himself is the way. John had no difficulty in maintaining and communicating his inferior position to Jesus who was the Messiah. Again, we'll talk more about John the Baptist next week. Letter B. John says that we have received His fullness. first part of verse 16 reads, For of His fullness we have all received. So the message of John the Baptist is an external witness. This fullness that we have received is an internal witness into our own spiritual lives. Now, notice in verse 16 the capitalization of the personal pronoun, His. This refers to Christ, not John the Baptist. Some of the early church followers and some of those who were loyal to John the Baptist insisted that the fullness that we have received was from John the Baptist. But that gets into all kinds of difficulty if we're going to put upon John the Baptist a position that he himself did not take because it would make him more than he was as the forerunner or the messenger of Jesus Christ. We would read these words in Colossians chapter 2. For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's no mention of John the Baptist in any of these verses that talk about the position and the person of Jesus Christ as being God. John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and all who have received Jesus have received His fullness, and having received Him, 
we have received God Himself. That's an overwhelming thought for us to consider. That by receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior, by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we have actually received God Himself. So when we have received the fullness of God, when we have received the fullness of the Word, it means that we have not been left in want spiritually. We lack for nothing in our relationship with God. We may not have all the answers, but we know who does. We may not be able to explain the why of what takes place in our life, but we know who is in charge. We have been given everything that we need as it pertains to our spiritual lives and our relationship with Him. We have received a full and a complete and a life-changing revelation of God through the ministry and the life of Jesus It's full of blessing. It's full of provision. It's full of eternal promises. It's full of power. It's full of goodness. It's full of grace. It's full of peace. It's full of mercy. It's full of God Himself. We have received the fullness that exists in the Word. There's not something else to come other than our increased submission to His Lordship as we get glimpses of who He is as we see His provision for our needs. Letter C. The witness of His glory is full of grace and truth. last part of verse 16 says, and grace upon grace. This is an eternal witness. The external witness of John, the internal witness of our receiving the fullness of Him into our lives, and now we have this eternal witness of grace upon grace, upon grace. If you go to the beach and you sit there in your chair and you look out into the water, you'll notice that the waves never stop coming, one after another. It is wave upon wave upon wave. And that is how we are to view the grace of God. It is an eternal provision from Him, an unending supply of grace for all of our needs, to cover all of our faults, to cleanse us from all of our failures. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Well, what would happen if God's grace stopped coming into our lives? Well, then, my friend, we're left with the law. And this is what John now alludes to in these verses that follow. We see, number three, the impact of His glory. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the impact of His glory, letter A, we see that grace has triumphed over the law. So, where did the law originate? Well, John tells us, the law originates with Moses. The law reflects the righteous perfection of God. And if we go in and read in the book of Romans, Paul says that the law is not sin, the law is not bad. The law is a reflection of the perfection that exists within God Himself. 
The law is designed to show us the depth and the hopelessness of our sinful condition and our our inability to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. There is no salvation in the law because no one can keep the law. So we see what John is alluding to here is that grace has triumphed over the law. Now, does that mean that there is no grace in the Old Testament? Well, absolutely not. Because if there was no grace in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would have perished a long, long time ago. They went through a continuous cycle of worshiping and leaving and rebelling and returning back to God. All through their history. And the reason they were able to return back to God was because God showered them with His grace. There is plenty of grace found in the law. Excuse me, found in the Old Testament. But grace was not found in the law because the law is not an instrument of grace. It convicts of sin and it condemns us to right to, to our judgment. The law exposes the need for grace since none can perfectly keep the law. So while there is grace in the Old Testament, the law itself is not an instrument of grace. The law is what convicts us of our sin and ushers us down the path of judgment because none can keep the law. We read this in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore the law has become our tutor, our teacher, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so grace triumphs over the law by providing forgiveness for what we cannot do, and that is perfectly keeping the law. And it gives to us what we do not deserve, and that is salvation, which results in our eternal life with God. The law teaches us that the solution cannot be found in the law. The law teaches us that grace is found in Jesus Christ. And that is grace upon grace upon grace to give to us what we don't deserve, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The second impact of His glory is this. God was made visible. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So, no one has seen God at any time. In the Greek, that literally reads, God no one has seen ever. You know that's true, right? No one has ever seen God in His fullness. Death would be instant because God is so holy and so righteous that no one can stand in His presence. We read this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. God said, You cannot see My face, for no man can see Me and live. But through Jesus and the veiled glory of God in His life, He has fully explained God. Read with me in John chapter 14, verses 7-9. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know Me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The word that John uses here, that Jesus has explained him, is the Greek word exegeomai, which is the English word that we get for exegesis. Exegesis means the interpretation of Scripture. And so when that word is selected, that Jesus has explained Him, God, it means that Jesus is interpreting for us in fullness, with great accuracy, who God really is. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. It speaks of the shared nature that Jesus has with the Father, just as it said in verse 1, that He was with God face to face of the same essence, of the same being. And this is what's getting repeated here at the closure of this prologue. Only Jesus can interpret God, and He does so with absolute clarity. If you want to know what what God is like, you need to look no further than the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus Himself. If someone says to you, I don't know what God is like, all we need to say is, read the Gospel of John and you will know. Jesus interprets to us a full revelation, full of grace and truth, exactly who God is. And so, in these 18 verses, in this prologue, Jesus, who existed in intimate fellowship with the Father from all eternity, became flesh and brought the full expression of grace and truth to mankind and has revealed God to man. How He did that is what we will explore as we continue through the Gospel of John. As you think about the great blessing that it is to know who He is, to know that we have been recipients of the grace that, this, that explains what it is He's done for us by dying on the cross, what is our rightful response to that? We owe to Him absolutely everything. And we have this continual challenge to give back to Him everything from our lives. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we can't fully understand, nor can we fully explain, this great doctrine of the Incarnation, that God became a man, yet was still fully God, and fully man to go to the cross to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin the eternal God who existed from the beginning of beginnings died so that we could know you so that we could be saved and cleansed from our sin and so that we could live our lives with the confident hope of the future glory that awaits us for all of eternity with you God, I pray that you would capture our heart and our mind and our will with this great truth that our lives would continually be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be cooperative with you in the process of lordship, that we would hold nothing back and give to you what you truly desire. 
and what you truly deserve, and that is our very lives. God, how we thank you for your grace, how we thank you for your goodness. We pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal to us just how good you are to us, your children. We pray in Jesus' name.